Let's open our Bibles this morning to Colossians chapter 1. This is one of those great passages that define for us who Jesus is. We'll only really touch on a couple things within this passage. Um, We'll have to come back another time uh, to pick and and choose some of the things that are here to really get in depth with. But this will give us an understanding of who Jesus is, both in the context of what the church at Colossae was struggling with and also in the context of who we are as believers today. And what the Lord calls us to to do, how he calls us to live because of who Jesus is. So if you're able, let's stand and I'll read the word of God. Lord, come upon us today with your spirit, we pray. That we would have understanding and insight that we would both read your word, that it would penetrate into our hearts and minds that we would know who Jesus is. We ask this in his name. Amen. Colossians 1, 15 through 23. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. This is God's inspired word for us today, so please be seated. Now what we have here is a book, no ordinary book, obviously. We come here every Sunday and we read from it and we pattern our lives off of what we find in it. We know this is more than some romance novel, something like that. Now it's interesting The type of book this is, this is a book about a person. The Old Testament talks about the person who is coming. The Gospels in the New Testament describe his life. The Acts describe uh, salvation that is found in him. The Epistles are a uh, how-to guide on on living out the life that he calls us to live. Revelation is the uh, grand finality, the kind of wrap-up of everything where Christ sits on the throne. It contains a variety of types of literature. There's history, there's poetry, there's uh, intrigue. There's some things in here you could write soap operas off of. 
Okay? It, it, it's that, that uh, well, it demonstrates uh, man's sinfulness. I mean, Scripture doesn't hide anything from us. Clearly laid out for us all of these things. There is uh, a prophecy in here, but it is not a book about soap operas. It's not a book of history. It's not a book of poetry. It's not a book about prophecy. It is a book about Jesus Christ. And everything that's written in here helps to reveal him to us. And if it's not in here, then we really don't need to know about it in his life. People have come to me, one of the great questions I get from non-believers is, is okay, Rand, well, what, why doesn't it mention anything about Jesus' life for, for 20 years? We don't know anything that happened in Jesus' life. I said, I said so? Well, well, what did he do? I said, he probably lived. Why doesn't it say anything? Well, because we don't need to know. We don't need to know that period of time of his life to understand who he is and what he calls us to do. We need to know the birth narrative. We need to know a touch about those early years and then really when his ministry begins. Those are the key points in his life that we need to see and to understand and which scripture uses those times to reveal to us who he is. It is a book about him. Now, it's, it's interesting. We have, in, in Sunday school, we talked about uh, that the Bible was the bestseller. Every year, it is the best-selling book in the world. Uh, 500 million Bibles are printed uh, just about every year. And every year, we bring in the Gideon, uh, the Gideon representative to talk about uh, the importance of getting the word into people's hands and how, how hard they work to make that happen. Excuse me, But in all these things, in all the information that is available, we still have people who have a misunderstanding about Jesus Christ. We have six billion and some change people in the world. There are billions of people who don't know him, billions of people who have a false information or understanding about Jesus, even though he is clearly laid out for us in the pages right before us in black and white. There are people who doubt his supremacy, that he's not Lord. Oh, he's a good guy, but he's not Lord. There are those who doubt his sufficiency. And they think they must add to his work of what he did on the cross. There must be something else that I have to add. Maybe my own efforts. Maybe I can find something to add in psychology or or in uh, pragmatism or astrology or something like that. When we come to this group, this church at Colossae, Paul is dealing with one of the misunderstandings of Christ, one of the heresies that those false teachers were, were uh, teaching, dealing with his deity, dealing with his deity, that he, he is not sufficient for salvation because there is something missing in Christ. You must add to it. And they thought some, you must add some relationship with, uh, that's why they were worshiping angels. Uh, in re- reality, they weren't worshiping angels. They were getting in touch with demonic beings. Uh, there must be some secret knowledge that we can get that is beyond what has been revealed in Christ. And Paul says, there's no secret knowledge. There's Christ. Know him. Because Christ did what? He pre- I preached Christ and him crucified. That was it. I desire to know Christ. That, that, that was all for Paul. But according to the false teachers, uh, Christ was not God. In fact, he wasn't an, even an adequate savior. Something had to be ad- <coughs> excuse me, added to the work of Christ. He just wasn't sufficient. But yet, Paul says in verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn of all creation. The image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, if you look throughout Scripture, uh, the Catechism, for those of you who have memorized the Catechism, God is what? Spirit, okay? Even the children's Catechism, you know, who is God? And it goes on like this, but God is Spirit. Old Testament talk tells us God is invisible. First Timothy tells us God is invisible. We cannot see him. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 1, just a couple pages backwards. We're going to have a, a little bit of understanding of who Christ is. And Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4 really lays this out for us. Now, this is one of those passages um, that was used. To become a minister, you have to take exams, just like almost any profession. So you had to take an exam to prove that you were proficient in either Hebrew or Greek. So I chose Greek, and this was the passage. And the only limiting factor was you were only allowed to write 25,000 words on that passage. Now, for the high school student who says, I've got to write a 500-word essay, you know, what am I going to do? Uh, well, you know, when you write 25,000 words on, on some, something like this, you can burp 500 words, okay? It just comes out so easily. Now, let's look at this passage because this is one of those passages that reveals Christ to us. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, and these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. So let's look first at this radiance. He is the uh, exact representation. He is the radiance of his glory. That is, the Son is the radiance of the Father's glory. Now, uh, I was thinking, how could I, I make this uh, not so theological and kind of plain and simple? You look at the sun in the sky. The sun is a ball of hot gas. What comes off of the sun is, in a sense, the brilliance or the radiance of the sun. What do we experience of the sun? We experience that radiance. We experience the brightness. The radiance of the sun is not the sun, but it is the same essence as the sun. That is the same thing that they're talking about here about the Father and the Son. The Son is the same essence. He reveals the Father to us. He is the radiance of the Father, not being the Father, but being the same substance as the Father. He shows us the brightness of the Father's glory. He reveals the essence of the Father to us. Notice in uh, chapter in verse 3 here in Hebrews, he is... Um, he is the, the exact representation of his nature. The exact representation of his nature. In, in Greek, uh, the word is what you'd use for a stamp. If you had a signet ring uh, or a stamp that showed your family heritage or something like that, that you would seal an envelope in wax, you would go to a stamp maker and he would fashion this in exactly the same way so that there would be no doubt that when you stamped into that wax, it was your family seal, and it, and it was not a forgery. It was the exact representation 
And that is the same thing that it talks about here. He is the exact image of the Father. John chapter 1 says, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. And John says, When we saw the Son, we beheld his glory. It was the glory of the only begotten of the Father. So scripture as a whole points to Christ as the same essence, as the same as the Father, yet in a distinct individual. In Philippians chapter 2, the great Christ hymn plays that out for us a little bit more. Now, it's interesting that if you go to the Old Testament, God revealed himself typically through his word. It says very clearly and and very often, and the word of the Lord came to the prophet, example, Amos. Okay, The word of the Lord. God reveals himself through his spoken word. They always thought about God expressing himself in a verbal kind of fashion. So he says here in Hebrews chapter 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son. Now, what did we read together in John chapter 1? In the beginning was the word, okay? And the word was God, and the word was with God. So we see this whole kind of understanding here that God reveals himself in this way and God has revealed himself finally in his son, the word of God. Now, keep your finger, if you would, in Hebrews and go back to Colossians. Christ is the firstborn of all creation. Well, if he's born... If he's the firstborn of all creation, how does that work? Well, the firstborn, the Greek is prototokos. It means the first in rank, the first in honor, uh, the first in primacy. It doesn't mean chronologically. It means Christ is above all else. He is above everyone else. He is first on the list. It is a rank of uh, inheritance. Remember in the Old Testament, the firstborn son would get two-thirds of the estate. And then every son after that would get what whatever, whatever was left, however, however it was to be divided. Uh, ladies, you were out of luck, sorry. Um, but it refers to being the father's heir. Now you think, <clears throat> well, why would the father go through all of this to create? I mean, all things were created by him and through him, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Without him, nothing is created. Nothing was created that has been created. Well, basically we want to ask ask the question, why are we here? If God has gone to all this work, then why are we here? There must be some importance there. Let me give you the view of someone who doesn't believe. Stephen Jay Gould, who's a Harvard paleontologist, he's regarded as the most eminent authority on how life began. This is his view. We exist because one odd fish... One odd group of fishes had a particular fin anatomy that could transform into legs for terrestrial creatures. We're here because the earth never froze entirely during an ice age, because a small and tenuous species arising in Africa a quarter of a million years ago has managed so far to survive by hook and by crook. We may yearn for a higher answer, but none exists. And talk about despair. Why are we here? It's a random convergence of innate particles came together and eventually a group of fishes who had 
the right fin crawled out of the water. Just warms my heart. Doesn't doesn't give you a fuzzy? Okay. I mean, what a meaningless existence. I mean, we must be an accident. We're a fluke. Why, Why are we here then? Well, contrast that with the view of Scripture, that the Lord has created all things, and he has created us for his glory, that we might trust him, love him, serve him, that we might be blessed by him. So which, which would you rather hold to? The view that we're just uh, uh, here because a fish had a fin that got him out of the water, or that we are the special creation of our Heavenly Father through his Son, Jesus the Christ? I choose to the second one. I choose the second one. So scripture says we're here because the Lord Almighty has brought everything into existence by his will and power. We're here because a wise and loving creator wanted us and fashioned us in just this way. He knew us in our mother's womb. He knit us together there. This is not some fluke. We are here because of his desire. Look at verse 17. And he is before all things and in him all things Hold together. Well, what's that mean? All things hold together. Uh, If this earth that we're on spun a little bit slower, we would all have alternately great tans and freezing cold. Okay? Then if the earth was just a little bit closer, uh, we all wouldn't be here. To the sun, we all wouldn't be here because we would be burned up. A little bit further away, we'd be all icicles. If the moon was closer to the earth, then the tides would be so much greater. Uh, All things hold together in him. Christ is the one that sustains all things. And and the, the deeper understanding here is that God makes certain rules that don't change. I mean, God is not arbitrary. If he changed the rules, imagine if he changed the rules on where he wanted to put the planets. Oh, you know, I... Billions and billions of years ago, I, I placed a planet there, and I just don't like it there anymore. I'm going to move it. Okay? Or I put that moon there, and I just don't think uh, I did right there, and I'm going to move it over here. Or I'm going to slow down the revolutions of that earth. Okay? That would be the end of us. But God is not arbitrary. When he makes rules, he sticks to them, and he sustains and upholds all things through Christ. Somebody's got to make sure. Things hang together, and that's what Christ does. A.W. Tozer wrote a book, and in it he was a tribute to Frederick Faber, the Englishman who wrote the song Faith of Our Fathers. Dan was playing that earlier. Tozer writes about Faber, his love for the person of Christ was so intense that it threatened to consume him. It burned within him as a sweet and holy madness and flowed from his lips like molten gold. That's that's what I like to have remembered about me. Wouldn't you like that to be your epitaph on your tombstone? In one of his sermons, Faber wrote, Whenever we turn in the church, wherever we turn in the church of God, there is Jesus. He is the beginning, the middle, and the end of everything to us. There is nothing good, nothing holy, nothing beautiful, nothing joyous, which he is not to his servants. No need to be downcast, for Jesus is the joy of heaven. It is his joy to enter into sorrowful hearts. He can exaggerate about, we can exaggerate about many things, but we can never exaggerate our obligation to Christ. 
or the compassionate abundance of the love of Jesus to us. All our lives long we might talk about Jesus, and yet we should never come to an end of the sweet things that might be said of him. See, this is the Christ that holds all things together. This is the Christ who created, through, who, through whom all things were created. And nothing exists in this world that didn't come through him. Christ is the giver of life. He is the sustainer of the world. He is the essence of the Father. He is the one who humbled himself, taking on the form of a man and giving his life for us. This is Christ. Well, the question is, do we believe that? Do we believe these things about Jesus? And if we do, how is it that we live because of it? Let's pray. Lord, we come to you today. The question, who is Jesus? And and Paul answers it clearly for us. It's the radiance of the Father. He is the one through whom we have life. He is the one through whom all things were created. He is the one who sustains us, not just the world and where it is in the universe, but us. Our very next breath is dependent upon your care. Lord, as we prepare to come to the table today, might we be reminded of who Jesus is and what he calls us to do. That this one who is eternal, this one who is the same substance as you, but did not count equality with you something to be grasped, left your right hand, came into this world in in the form of a man, and gave his life for us, that we might know salvation. Because he was willing to humble himself, you have exalted him, and his name is above every other name. Or draw us unto yourself today, that we might be made keenly aware of what Christ has done for us, that no one would leave here with any doubt that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. In preparation for communion, let's stand and sing the first two verses of 400, Have Thine Own Way. 400, the first two verses.